0: See it is 43 degrees and sunny. In New York City, 40 degrees, partly cloudy. From WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin.
1: Welcome to African Now! Today's show features Reflections on Malcolm X, Part 3 Applying Malcolm. African Now is next. Welcome to Shaw Moisa Montali. The music in the background is Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Whalers. And we play that commemorating Bob Marley's birthday, which is February 6th. First, I just want to thank the listeners for supporting Don't Forget the Blues with Clarence the Bluesman Turner today during our winter pledge drive. Our goal for this hour is $500. And I'm certain that we can go well over our goal. Call today at one 800 222-9739. Again, that's 1 800 222 9739. Or visit wpfwfm.org and go to the donate now button. Or go to our cash app, which is the dollar sign WPFW. Again, the cash app is the dollar sign WPFW. To support Africa Now and WPFW today during our winter pledge drive. Your continued support over the years has made it possible for us to cover and connect the issues in the entire African world and the rest of the globe. WPFW is your revolutionary radio for Revolutionary Times. Gil Scott-Heron said the revolution will not be televised and yet we've seen oppression, suffering and resistance streamed in real time across the country and around the world from Palestine to DC. In times like these, It's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. We offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive today at WPFWFM.org or by calling one 800 222 9739, and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. And of course, you can also support the station by going to our cash app, which is the dollar sign WPFW. Today, Africa Now continues a series which highlights some of the discussion which took place during the Malcolm X radical tradition and a legacy of struggle conference, which was held. In New York City in November 1990. More than 3,000 people from 25 countries attended the conference which featured more than 100 speakers that led 24 sessions that deeply explored, contextualized, and situated El Hajj Malik El Shabazz in the genealogy of Black Radical Internationalism as a Pan-Africanist. In today's program, we feature Part 3, Applying Malcolm, part of the series on this conference. In the final installment, part three, Applying Malcolm on African Now, features Barbara Ransby and Fran Beal. Here is African Now's executive producer and co-host James Pope with the conversation.
2: Thank you for tapping into Reflections of Malcolm X through the 1990 Malcolm X Radical Tradition and a Legacy of Struggle Conference. This is Part 3, Applying Malcolm. In this series, Africa World Now Project is sharing some of the sessions from this conference in an effort to engender serious engagement with Malcolm, not in the narrow confines of him as an individual or pigeonhole him to moments or sound bites, but to identify the tradition that produced Malcolm as a nexus a point of entry for many seriously trying to figure out what is to be done. More than this, we encourage you to visit Dr. Abdul Akalimat's website to explore, read, and hear more of the conference. The archive link will be available in the description section as you locate the program via various podcast platforms. Our show was produced today in solidarity with the Native, Indigenous, African, and afro descendant communities at Standing Rock, Venezuela, Corporation Jackson in Jackson, Mississippi, Brazil, the Avalon Village in Detroit, Colombia, Kenya, Palestine, South Africa, Ghana, IED, and other places who are fighting for the protection of our land for the benefit of all peoples. Listen intently, think critically, act accordingly.
3: The next one is Barbara Rainsby. She's a student and community activist, co-founder of the Ella Baker Nelson Mandela Center at the University of Michigan which aims to bridge the gulf between the academic community and the black community. She's currently working on a black women's oral history project and I'd like to welcome her from Michigan. Well, I'll try to be brief because I'm anxious to hear what this audience has to say about some of the things that were thrown out and also fortunate to go behind Uh, sisters who have already articulated many of the points which I think need to be brought out uh, in this session. Um, I'm very happy to see this room overflowing. I think this represents a lot of progress in terms of the Black liberation struggle, that we can have a session like this and have standing room only, uh, that we can have the lively discussion we did uh, with Bell Hook last night, and hopefully uh, a lively discussion that will test the, the limits of this time frame that we have. Um, I want to talk about mainly three things. Uh, I want to talk about the ideology of black women's oppression today and how we need to define it more sharply, uh, the obstacles in doing that. Three aspects of that are the the, uh, male-centered definition of oppression, which I think we see coming from a number of angles uh, at this juncture from a number of black male intellectuals as well. Uh, the definition of family and the attacks on the black family we see in the current dialogue among sociologists and others who defined our families as broken as Maxine uh, alluded to in her presentation and finally the cultural uh, onslaught of a lot of misogynist uh, representations of black women in popular culture. I think we need to come to grips with um, these various forms of attack upon black women if we're going to define uh, liberation for black men and women in this period. We've seen over the past few years a re-emergence of a very male-centered definition of the suffering, oppression, and exploitation of African-American people. In Juwanza Konjufu's book, Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys, he argues for the paramountcy of black male oppression, tacitly implying uh, that, that black women's oppression is somehow less significant and less paramount. We see in Kunjufu's work a resurrection of Moynihan's pathological black family. We see it dressed up in blackface and are expected to swallow it. Numerous pamphlets, articles have highlighted the crisis of the black male. We often allow this to creep into our language when we say we're concerned about our children, but especially our sons. When we say especially our sons, does this mean less significantly our daughters? Public programs, in fact, are being designed geared exclusively for the needs of young black men. As African-American women, as mothers, wives, sisters, daughters, and lovers of black men, we are and should be desperately concerned about the suffering and oppression of African-American men and pledge ourselves to struggling side by side for a more humane vision for the future of all our people. However, we cannot allow the oppression of all black people to be made so gender-specific that it negates and minimizes, however indirectly, our own suffering and subjugation as women. Such such a male-centered definition of black oppression is detrimental to the future and progress of all of our people and the notion that black men are targeted for special oppression not simply because of race but also because of gender turns much of the black feminist dialogue of the past two decades on its head and suggests not that gender is irrelevant but that in fact it is males who are targeted for gender oppression and that indirectly women somehow are exempted and in fact have some kind of privilege because they are women and that is a very very dangerous concept it is the resurrection of a concept we heard by a lot of white historians in discussing the history of slavery. A number of a, much of the literature on slavery for a while argued that in fact slave women were exempted from many of the bu- abuses suffered by male slaves. In fact, we see in much of the more recent literature by black feminist scholars uh, that in fact black women, Suffered the double abuse of not only being reproducers, but being producers as well. Slave masters would often dig holes in the ground to accommodate pregnant women who had to lay face down for floggings, for being uh, uppity in some cases. So we see that throughout the history black women have suffered side by side with black men and suffered doubly the burden of sexism. We have to be very cautious and very skeptical about any theory that dissects out sexism from the experience of black women in this country. Such a view suggests some very serious misconceptions about the nature and extent of black women's oppression. Two main things that are often put forth in arguing for the special oppression of black men is is the prison system as it impacts upon black men, and it does impact very seriously and very negatively upon our brothers. And secondly, the devastating impact of drugs and violence. But black women, too, are victims of prisons and violence. Literally, black women are thrown into jail in disproportionately high numbers to our white female counterparts. But on another level, black women are trapped in the prison of poverty, underemployment, homelessness, and hunger more than 50 percent of black children are under the poverty level who are the caretakers of those children but black women teenage pregnancy dead-end jobs with slave wages are other prisons for thousands of black women and when you enter the welfare system as perhaps sister Miriam Kramer will tell us about in a minute it very much resembles entering a prison environment you are processed to the hilt you are given a case number you are stripped and searched to the bone by social workers, poking, probing, and monitoring every crevice of your life. If that is not prison, I don't know what is. And in terms of violence, black in terms of violence, black women are beaten and killed daily with impunity. The media coverage of the recent uh, Central Park rape case, in contrast uh, to the brutal murder of a young black sister the week before suggest the lack of value placed on the lives of black women in the society. But beyond the statistics on rape, spouse abuse, and sexual harassment, African-American women confront other aspects of institutional and economic violence on a daily basis as well. Reproductive choice is increasingly a non-reality for black women with the erosion of Medicaid funding for abortion. Vernice told us about this and we should take this attack upon us very seriously. In essence, Roe versus Wade has already been reversed for black women. This is an act of violence against women who are denied the basic choices over their lives and their reproductive capacities. The denial of basic healthcare and housing to black women and children is an act of violence. And the concentration of black women in dead-end service industry jobs at slave wages is another act of violence against black women. So while our brothers are disproportionately victims of homicide and the prison system, sisters, too, are suffering long and torturous deaths in tiny roach-infested cells reserved for black women and children. The second component of this whole discussion about gender and black liberation, and very related to the first, is the current media hype over the so-called demise of the black family. We are fed some very dangerous and limited and narrow statistics about the breakdown of the black family, which essentially documents the rise in black female-headed households as evidence of this breakdown. Because a woman is not connected to a man at a particular moment in time does not necessarily mean her family is dysfunctional or she is broken. (laughs) What makes the condition of single mothers so desperate is the lack of economic resources with which which to care for their families. This definition also denies the reality of our lesbian sisters who are in quite functional family relationships and love relationships without the presence of our brothers. We have to deal with that this narrow definition of broken families is rooted in a romanticized vision of the white middle-class patriarchal family it's interesting to me it's interesting to me that many brothers who are proponents uh... of this view uh... and identify themselves as nationalists now if it's not an assimilationist approach to attempt to model yourself after the cleavers and donna reed i don't know what is this has never been this has never been an accurate reflection of the black family anyway. We have, since slavery had elaborate kinship networks, extended family structures and fictive kin to serve as surrogate parents for children when that was necessary. So the, the traditional patriarchal family structure has not, never been something that's been a reality in our families and in our communities. This does not mean that men are not important in our communities. they are whether we are married to them or not. We have fathers, we have sons, we have brothers, we have neighbors. This definition of broken is one that, that does not fit uh, the traditional heterosexual patriarchal model. It suggests a warped sense of what families ought to be about. In any case, the entire media hype about the black family has been both racist, has been sexist, racist, and elitist we see in Bill Moyers' TV pseudo-documentary a graphic illustration of the dangers of these myths currently being perpetrated. Bill Moyers, by the way, was the person who initially uh, introduced Moynihan's report to Lyndon Baines Johnson and urged him uh, to incorporate it into a very famous speech he gave at Howard University about the, the crisis of the black family and the matriarchal black family structure. In any way, some of you recall, this show characterized black men as shiftless, irresponsible studs and black women as mindless, incompetent baby factories. The solution that's posed is basically for white social service agencies to abandon uh, black families and for ba- black patriarchy to reign supreme. Now, black, many black middle-class leaders, sad to say, are echoing many of the racist, elitist, and sexist messages that we saw in that documentary. Joining the call and joining the barrage of insults and criticisms being heaped upon poor black people, both men and women. What makes this message particularly dangerous on another level is that it is a classic example of blaming the victim. We are told that a broken black family is a single-parent household, and a single-parent household are the causes of crime, drug abuse, unemployment, and everything else bad in our community. Racist, capitalist whites are absolved of all sins. This is also a class question because the families that are targeted, the families that are defined as the most broken, are, of course, poor families. The parameters of this dialogue have been dangerously constructed, and I suggest if we are going to move toward true liberation, uh, we deal with those who who profess to be giving answers on this question, and who are defining the parameters of this debate, and that we confront them very sharply, regardless of, of race or gender. The final assault upon black women, and there's been some discussion in this conference uh, among some of the young people about this, which I thought was, was quite good, um, is is the question of the cultural assault upon black women. As if the economic and the social assaults are not enough. (laughs) Simultaneous with the increase of a very male-centered definition of black oppression has risen a blatant and unapologetic uh, rise in sexism and misogyny in popular uh, black culture. most notably and profanely in the lyrics of video uh, the lyrics and videos of groups like Two Live Crew now we can get into Two Live Crew now, last night two brothers raised the question can black men in a white racist society be sexist I think Two Live Crew help us to answer that question in essence Black men are not at the centers of power in this society, but we have all heard of the concept. is and punching bags. You are collaborating with a white patriarchal system that has oppressed us all. And our brothers and sisters in South Africa can teach us some lessons about dealing with collaborators. Now, I think any way you cut it, any way you cut it, people who put forward these ideas are not only enemies of black women, they're enemies of black people, and whether they're black or white. And sometimes they can more effectively be enemies of their pe- our people uh, when they are not white. Now, I'm not forgiving the white, I'm just gonna digress on 2 proof for a minute because I think it has been an important question. Should we attack 2LiveProof sexism is that in fact, another form of collaboration with the system which is trying to silence them because they're black men and so forth. Now, I'm not giving the white power structure any more uh, power to have control over our lives than it it already does. But neither am I gonna allow them to define my heroes by default. In other words, anyone they attack, we love.
1: Uh, Again, that that is uh, Barbara Ransby. And she was presenting that uh, uh, discussion, that lecture uh, at the um, Malcolm X Radical Tradition and a Legacy of a Struggle, conference which was held in New York City uh, in November 1990. Uh, This is a continuation of a series. um, We're highlighting some of the discussion that took place at that conference. This is the third part. This is the final part of our series. And this uh, series in the part three uh, these part three is entitled uh, Applying Malcolm, and that f- is features, uh, Barbara Ransby and, uh, Fran Beal. And, uh, I'm Wizom Tali, host of Africa Now. Uh, welcome to the show. And as you know, this is, uh, the, the beginning of our winter pledge drive. And, uh, again, thank you for supporting Clemens, uh, Uh, Turner, and don't forget the blues earlier, just before our show. And to support Africa Now and uh, WPFW, you can call 1 800 222 9739. That's 1 800 222 9739. Or, and also, you can visit the WPFW website, wpfwfm.org. Go to the donate now button, scroll down to Africa Now to uh, make your support for Africa now and WPFW. And, uh, also we have the cash app, which is the dollar sign, WPFW. And again, the cash app is the the dollar sign WPFW, uh, because of your support, uh, we've been able to, uh, cover and connect the issues, uh, uh, in the entire African world and the rest of the globe and. As I uh, mentioned before, WPFW is your revolutionary radio uh, or revolutionary times. And it's the only place you're going to hear su- uh, such programs that we have today, for instance, uh, the, um, the this uh, conversation looking at uh, um, Malcolm X, really contextualizing and also deeply exploring uh, Malik el Shabazz in the genealogy of the radical internationalism as a Pan-Africanist. Again, go to the phones to support Africa Now and WPFW at uh, 1-800-222-9739 or you can also make your support uh, on uh, Fm.org on the Donate Now button, scroll down to Africa Now uh, on step 1- and uh, indicate how much you'd like to donate. And as we mentioned, uh, since we're featuring, um, uh, looking at Malcolm X, for your support of uh, $180, you can get, get the um, uh, Pacifica Radio Archives 6 CD box set of Malcolm X. Uh, that's uh, for your support of uh, hundred eighteen dollars $180. And all we need is like five people to support social the show for hundred dollars each and we reach our goal. Our goal is for the hour is four hundred sorry, five hundred dollars. Uh the, the goal again is five hundred dollars. And I just wanna thank um Anonymous from Severn Maryland who's uh started up with had a start off a good start so far. So we have um, four hundred dollars to go and but of course, we sh- you can go more over the four hundred dollars. So that's just a benchmark. But uh, uh, we would uh, and and all, all the the support that you've been giving us throughout the years since uh, uh, nineteen seventy seven, since February nineteen seventy seven, um, they, they, we really appreciated. So forty seven years ago, to almost to the day, uh, towards the end of the month, will be actually exactly forty seven years ago when WPFW came on the air as a community station, and you have been there throughout that uh, that journey, throughout all the movements and, uh, and all the various topics that we cover. Um, and again, your support for, let's say, the $200, you can receive um, a donation, a thank you donation. Uh, sorry, thank you, gift from uh, uh, the Physical Radio Archives, Voices Who Changed the World, flash drive fantastic flash drive gives you all the all the major players play, and 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 more and, and voices you you don't hear of in other places and there's also a, a play that's taking place this month uh for those in dc at the uh, new culture cafe for your support of 75 dollars. you can get a pair of tickets for that and and uh, this, that's uh, your donation for to Africa now and WPFW, $75 to so the play Zora, uh, about Zora Newellhausen. And uh, so you can go to that play at the New Cultural Cafe on the, 20, on the 16th of February this month. Weezy. Again, uh, the number again is 1-800-222-9739, 222 9739 or WPFWFM.org. And also the cash app is the dollar sign WPFW. We're going to go back to the um, the conversation uh, that we were, uh, aired earlier. Again, we're going to continue with the Barbara Ransbury. And then after that, there'll be uh, Fran Beal. And this is from the conference that took place, as I mentioned before, in November, 1990, uh, which was the Malcolm X radical tradition and the legacy of struggle. Um, And here is Barbara Ransby again.
3: To add add insult to injury, two live crew, leader Luther Campbell and his white lawyer and the noted scholar tycoon, Skip Gates, are going around the country. (laughs) Are are going around the country touting the notion that what Two Live Crew is putting forward is a legitimate reflection of African-American cultural mores on the sexual question. Now, (laughs) that, that Two Live Crew is being criticized because white folks don't really understand what they're saying, and black people don't really mind them saying that. Well, while kids rock to Two Live Crew, I don't see anybody making a serious defense of the lyrics of Two Live Crew within the black community. I don't see us saying, you you hear people say, yeah, I don't agree with them, but, but there's not a serious defense of Two Life Crew uh, inside the black community. And I think we need to stand up and say, these lyrics do not reflect the morals and culture of the black community, at least not any segment of it that we want to (laughs) preserve. So I think while we shouldn't call for the government to censor Two Live Crew, the black community should censor Two yeah, Live right. Crew. <laughs> uh, just on, on this question briefly, there's the other argument around free speech, uh, which is also related to, to the issue of gender and, and the uh, issue of political radicalism. There are people who argue we should defend Two Live Crew because all of our uh, rights of freedom of speech are in jeopardy. Well, for black women in this country, the right to free speech has been an elusive promise at best uh, for as long as I can remember and as long as the history that I know about. In addition, there are political prisoners in this country, uh, like Daruba Ben-Wahad, who was recently uh, released, Asada Shakur, who is in exile in Cuba, and other political prisoners who have been forcibly silenced by this government, had their free speech. Denied. So if we want to go on a crusade about free speech, let's choose our battles. Let's choose our battles and perhaps come to the defense of some people who have something worthwhile to say. Okay. All of these trends discussed, I think, represent a whole wide range of assaults upon African American women an attempt to marginalize African African American women's experiences in the current dialogue about black liberation, and these trends must be reversed. The question is how do we do this in practice? And I want to take the opportunity um, which Vivian had asked me to do at some point in the text to talk a little bit about some of the local struggles that have been going on in Ann Arbor. I think in our small way we have attempted to address the question of race, class, and gender not as an intersection, but as a symbiotic relationship. We often hear this discussion of the intersection of race, class, and gender as if these are three uh, separate units colliding uh, at some uh, metaphoric intersection. But in the lives of black women, these three variables uh, coexist simultaneously. And when we come to grips with that, we see the radical potential in organizing among poor and working class black women uh... in a pyramid system such as we live in the people on the very bottom the people oppressed not only by class and race but gender as well have some of the greatest potential for uprooting that pyramid because if you push it up from the bottom uh, the whole thing is made unstable and i think that is part of the radical potential that black women have uh... in this country today one of the things that we tried to do is also address the class question which is at the crux of the black liberation struggle um, today in my opinion uh... we've tried to transcend the college campus and to take uh... african-american students off the campus and into the local community in ann arbor we've been involved in struggles around housing where uh... four families were evicted uh... from a public housing project under this new uh... crusade against drugs Uh, four families of women and and children uh... were evicted uh... and put up as as, um, necessary prices to pay for this for this war against drug under the new seizure law. We came to the aid of those families and have been working with an organization in Ann Arbor called Unity, which is led by uh, African American women in, in public housing, and attempted to enter into a dialogue that that struggle is not only a struggle around economic issues, but it's a struggle about empowerment uh, for those women women who are some of the most marginalized sectors of the Ann Arbor community, which is a elitist white um, academic community and to put those women at the center of the dialogue about political change and political uh, struggle uh, in the black community in Ann Arbor uh, and among the left forces in Ann Arbor. In our work we've attempted to to merge theory and practice in in this regard and understand again the importance of transcending the class divisions Uh, that have have been put between us and understanding that in this period, particularly, the trade-off has been in the post-civil rights era that a handful of middle-class black folks will be given a few crumbs in exchange for silence about uh, or attacks against the majority of our poor and working-class brothers and sisters. And this is is true among women as well, and it's important for us to, in a very conscious way, reject that and offer an alternative praxis uh, in response in conclusion uh, I just want to conclude by saying a little bit about how all this relates to Malcolm Uh, first of all as the other sisters have said I think our first job is to frame Malcolm within the context of a larger movement that we do a disservice to the many other people who fought and died in the movements of the past if we began to deify Malcolm or Martin or Marcus or anybody else he taught us many lessons. He taught us to be proud. He taught us that if we stood together, we could win. He taught us to not be silent. He taught us that our anger was legitimate. And he taught us, and I hope this is the last conference I come to where a brother stands up and said he gave us our manhood. I think, I think after that long discussion about gender last night. <laughs> I think in some very special ways, he helped to empower us and give us our humanity. For some of us, he was a more androgynous figure in that we weren't striving to achieve our manhood. But, but, I, think, but I think Malcolm, one of the things that Malcolm uh, represents, which has been a, a wonderful theme in this conference, uh, has been the importance of carrying on, the importance of learning from our mistakes, the importance of humility when we make mistakes and to reject the kind of arrogance that stagnates our movements time and time and time again and in the spirit of malcolm i think the next phase of the struggle has to be one that not only incorporates the issues that malcolm addressed uh intensely and repeatedly and very well for all of us but many of the issues that he didn't address as well such as sexism and homophobia and i hope we take up that mantle
1: Our
4: first speaker is Fran
3: Beale, known to many of us. Her her activism began with SNCC and the struggle in the South during the 60s. She was a founding member of the Third World Women's Alliance. She's a former associate editor of Black Scholar magazine and is currently a freelance writer on national black politics. Welcome, Sam. Um,
4: I've been asked today to kind of give a little historical background, sort of to set the tone for our discussion. Uh, You know, just in terms of thinking about presentation i had to kind of take my mind out of my head and kind of throw it back uh... twenty five or thirty years to try to remember what the situation was like there uh, because a lot of young people uh... don't realize that a lot of the que- the very question that we're dealing today would not nor uh, automatically have been on a conference agenda of this time it was not a con- it was not considered an issue. No one had really raised the question in a mass type of a way, yet, obviously, in black women in the history of black women, there are a number of individual women who had taken part in the suffragette movement and had taken a part in other movements and certainly had spoken within the black community around the situation of of women. At the time though, when a number of us were involved in the civil rights movement, for obvious reasons, the key thing that we were fighting was white supremacy. Uh, I was a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That's what SNCC stands for. I know some young people have never heard that uh, uh, spelled out, but that's what SNCC uh, meant. Uh, SNCC was um, uh, initially conceived of by Ella Baker, who is a a great black woman who, uh, the mother of the civil rights movement and someone that all of us in SNCC, male and female alike, uh, loved and revered uh, very much, and I'd like us just to take a, a, a moment to give uh, uh, recognition to all of uh, people may know that the SNCC was a, a student or organization and uh, originally uh, the idea with the spontaneous uh, sit-in movement was to try to bring all of this together into an organization. And uh, the adults who were in the SCLC, which is the, student, uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, were, uh, interested in kind of gathering all this spontaneous energy of the youth under their ages. Um, Ella Baker, on the other hand, had an extremely, um, uh, open and questioning mind at all, uh, times, and she herself, uh, had been struggling in the, um, uh, behind the scenes, very much in uh, the first in the NAACP and then in SCLC, never uh, uh, achieved the kind of national recognition except for people who are actually in the movement who really know knew what we're going on. In any case, um, Ella Baker was the impetus for calling the conference in 1960 in Greensboro in which they hoped the conference would, was called by SCLC, and they hoped that a student arm of the SELC would emerge uh, from this. But, you know, students being students and youth being youth uh, decided that they did not want to be the youth arm of the SCLC and wanted to form an independent organization and that was the essentially the birth of of SNCC as an independent organization and not as a youth arm of the SCLC and this actually set the uh, groundwork for the radical politics that was to emerge Uh, in relationship to SNCC as opposed to the uh, SCLC, not that they weren't both radical organizations in the context of the politics of the time. Um, In any case, um, getting to the um, the Third World Women's Alliance, um, the Third World Women's Alliance was uh, actually founded in 1969. Um, Its name at that time was the SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee, and it was actually founded by um, several members, New York and Washington, D.C., as I recall. And there was a lot of debate within SNCC whether we should have uh, such an organization. Uh, Some people felt, well, there's no need for a separate uh, women's organization. It's divisive and the role of the women is whatever they do uh... in the in the organization Um, however there were a lot of things going on external to um, SNCC where women felt that there were some very backward ideas being propagated around the concept of women and that in fact it would be a very good idea for us to have an women's organization that specifically took up the gender-related, although we didn't use that term at the time, but the specific problems that women face uh, in society at large, uh, as citizens, uh, within the uh, civil rights movement, and amongst ourselves as, um, as women. Um, and in fact, uh, the Black Women's Liberation Committee was founded with um, the uh, in how shall I say it? Not exactly in cooperation with SNCC, but it was voted on at the 1969 December SNCC staff meeting, and they said, "Yeah, go ahead, take the ball and run with it." Uh, uh, essentially, um, and. Um, after that, uh, we evolved into the Third World Women's Alliance a couple of years later because we were approached in uh, New York City by a number of Puerto Rican sisters who said, there is no such organization in the Puerto Rican community. We would be interested in working with you. We think that our unities with the black women uh, are more significant than whatever cultural or ethnic difference there may, uh, that may exist. And in fact, we had quite a debate in the organization at that time, and it was the sort of, and a number of, when we, we finally voted on it, uh, the vast majority of women voted to become a third world organization and to uh, change the name of the organization to reflect that composition to the Third World Women's Alliance. Were-
1: You're listening to. You're listening to Africa Now on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., your Jazz and Justice station, and uh, we continue a series which highlights some of the discussion which took place uh, during the Malcolm X Radical Tradition and a Legacy of Struggle uh, conference which was held in New York City in November 1990, and uh, there were more than 3,000 people at that conference from 25 countries. And uh, we featured more than 100 speakers that led 24 sessions that deeply explored and contextualized and situated El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz in the genealogy of Black Radical Internationalism as a Pan-Africanist. This is the third and uh, final um, segment of the, 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 uh, the series that we had, this is part three. Part three looks at the applying Malcolm and is featuring Barbara Ransby and Fran Beale. And joining me also in in the studio is uh, Jerry Paris, who is the uh, general manager here at WPFW. Jerry, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you. And these are critical times. February is a critical month. February is when WPFW came into existence. And it also happens to be Black History Month. I would like to celebrate at least one African-American woman, if I may, and give everybody a bit of a quiz out here. So here I go. First thing, Muiza, help me out. Wasn't it Malcolm X who famously said, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Was that Mm -hmm. Malcolm X?
1: Uh, I think so, I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think he said something to that extent, yes, something to that extent.
5: So we want everybody to be part of the solution. You can't just tacitly sit back and be innocent you have to be part of the solution so little tiny test here to celebrate our african american women let me start here you should the name should pop into your head i hope so this african american woman is an american engineer physician and former nasa astronaut she became the first african american woman to travel into space when she served as a mission specialist aboard the Space Shuttle Endeavour. So despite all of the hardships, we still not just grow, but excel. Anybody know the name, give us a call, make a pledge. 202-588-9739-WPFW is in a membership drive. We want you to become part of this effort. This is a community effort. No sponsors, no ad agencies, no universities, no government. All we have is community. And what is community? A collection, hopefully, of families. We want you to be part of the WPFW family and community. Again, 202-588-9739. Make any donation that you can because you need to support your free media. This, in fact, is Yours. We need you right now for a moment. We're here for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Community radio perhaps at its finest, but we need your help to continue this effort. Okay, let's see. Deontay, thank you, sir.
4: On it, uh, the vast majority of women voted to become a third world organization and to uh, change the name of the organization to reflect that composition to the Third World Women's Alliance. There were a few black women who were more nationalist oriented, who felt that we were, that black women were so distinct that we should not have a, um, uh, uh, an organization. However, some of us felt so sorry for our Puerto Rican system. I mean, we, there we were. 50 strong, and there they were, four strong, you know, uh, that uh, we felt uh, after some, a series of discussions, we felt that there actually were more unities. Both of us belonged to ethnic or racial groups uh, at, of which uh, we were activists and in which uh, we had been struggling along with our brothers for some time. At the same time, we were uh, women and we were becoming conscious of the fact that within those movements and in society at large, we were not equal and we did not like it. So uh, that is essentially the birth of the uh, Third World Women's Alliance. And we, became, uh, we began publishing a newspaper in 1972 called Triple Jeopardy, which, um, of which I was the editor. And um, and its triple jeopardy stood for what the general political orientation of the Third World Women's Alliance was, and that was uh, the fight against racism, the fight against imperialism, and the fight against sexism. So that was the triple jeopardy. We said those are the three evils that are essentially pouring down on our heads, and which we have to uh, take up. Now. Um, uh, and we did take up a number of struggles, not only uh, amongst the yes, uh, nationalists who had, we, we thought had a number of very bad ideas about women 10 steps behind and so on and so forth, and I'm going to go into that a little bit more uh, uh, thing. One thing I have to say uh, about it, I um, feel very free kind of speaking in this thing, but I remember the first time I went to speak on the abortion issue. It was in 1971, it was up in Harlem and it was amongst a, a group of uh, Muslims. And um, now, <laughs> I, was, I was a person who had been in the civil rights movement, who'd been beaten up several times by the Alabama state cops. So I knew fear. Um, but I'll tell you, even though there was more danger in the final analysis from the alabama state Cup, i don't think i felt any more fear than when i said yes i would do that uh and it was one of the first public speeches i had ever made and there i was you know young and not experienced in doing speaking but i felt very determined about this because i felt so strongly about it Uh, I felt very strongly about the abortion issue both for philosophical and for personal reasons. I went to a high school which very few black women, went on to college, and uh, there were four of us, five of us uh, from that high school that went on to college. Uh, By um, Thanksgiving vacation, when we came back, only four came back because one had died from an illegal abortion. So, to me, abortion was what was, you know, killing. Women in this country and all of the whew, brouhaha about abortion being genocide of black people did not relate to the reality uh, that I knew. So for me, there was no question about the question of the right of black women to abortion. And we, uh, the Third World Women's Alliance, also became very involved in doing statistical studies to show, I mean, people remember, you didn't have the right to abortion, and in some states, you didn't even have the right like uh, to um, uh, contraceptive uh, uh, devices. But so things were really bad as far as, uh, you know, women being c- able to control even their biological functions, you know, uh, at, at any level. In any case, um, the Third World Women's Alliance began to take up a number of struggles both within the women's movement as a whole because we felt that we were women, uh, we felt that uh, we had just as many concerns as a number of the white women around there, but we felt that their lack of concern and uh, orientation towards minority women, black and Puerto Rican women in particular, and lack of concern on the class questions of working class and poor women made it very difficult sometimes to work with these other women. So we often found ourselves in the context of the women's movement raising the anti-racist banner. On the other hand, the brothers in the various organizations that some of us uh, involved in uh, did not see the issue of women's liberation or women's equality, which we used to like to uh, talk about, um, as uh, something that was, uh, that they should put on the front uh, burner. After all, the struggle against racism was the more important struggle, and to raise the question of women's liberation would be to divide the struggle, and in order to have unity, shut up. So um, this was was something that we uh, felt was not exactly what we wanted to do, however. so uh, eventually, we we actually began uh, to we became a very very active organization, and it was a time when uh, lots of things were happening, not only in the women's movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement. Uh, it was very easy to bring people together. You would call it. I remember one time we called uh, uh, we called a demonstration when Mikhail Cabral was killed um and over literally overnight we had 700 women just through telephone calling to come out and demonstrate in front of the portuguese uh, uh embassy it gives you a sense of the the motion of the time and how people could actually move a sense of that you know when you're in a movement a lot of consciousness
1: and that's activist uh, fran bill and uh, early on you heard uh, Barbara. Ransby, uh, and they were speaking at the um, co- conference that took place in uh, 1990, uh, which is the Malcolm X Radical Tradition and the Legacy of Struggle. Uh, the conference was held in New York City in 1990, uh, which uh, deeply explored and contextualized and situated el Malik Al-Shabazz in the genealogy of uh, Black radical internationalism as a pan-Africanist. And that was Part of our series that we've been having uh, in the past few weeks this is the last segment of the series. It's the third part. It's looking at applying Malcolm. And uh, and as as we mentioned before, we're in the midst of our winter pledge drive. And with me also is uh, Jerry Paris, the general manager here at WPFW. Jerry, uh, what message you have?
5: I'll start again with a question. Mwiza, are you stateside right now? Yes. <laughs> okay. Good to have you nearby. So we tell you all the time that WPFW is in fact global, and it's not just a slogan. Often, you hear Muiza reporting from Malawi, Malawi, right, and or anywhere on the African continent. So we are reporting to you from wherever we can. We are not in an ivory tower. Uh, yeah. We get out into the community. And Sorry, the I'm.
1: Uh, I'm actually. I'm, I'm I'm
5: I'm I'm going in and out because I'm actually in Malawi. <laughs> so. Oh, you are in Malawi. I thought you were stateside. You didn't hear me. Okay, so here we are reporting globally. WPFW. That is how large this platform that this community has created is. We perhaps hear from Rick in Germany too often, but that's how we roll at WPFW. We are all inclusive. This is community media. And when we first came on board, we thought it was like a social club here. But if it was a social club, it is an all-inclusive social club. Everybody is invited in. Everybody is a, a part of this family. All you have to do is make a phone call and join. 202-588-9739. I'm getting the rap signal. Thank you, Muiza.
1: Yeah, also a website wpfwfm.org and uh uh one eight hundred-two two two nine seven three nine and also WPFWFM.org. Uh, sorry uh, uh, the web the uh, web the um WhatsApp is the, the the Cash App rather not WhatsApp Cash App is the dollar sign WPFW. Up next is Headline News, followed by Shana Anan, and also followed by Sophie's Parlor. Thanks to our executive producer and co-host James Pope. And also our Africa Will not Pro- Project Collective of Tasmin Siddiqui, Dr. Keisha Kamperi, and Josh Myers, and Kurt Oderson, and our volunteers, uh Poonangona and um, uh, Chanda Kose, and our engineers.
0: For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. The storm that parked itself over Southern California for days, unleashing historic downpours, is expected to move out of the region by tomorrow, but California officials are warning residents not to let their guards down, as more rain and mountain snow are expected later today. One of the wettest storms in Southern California history unleashed at least 475 mudslides in the Los Angeles area alone and downed 400 trees in the city after dumping more than one foot of rain in some areas. Across the state, at least seven people died in the extreme weather. Authorities are warning of the continued threat of collapsing hillsides the Environmental Protection Agency today announced stricter standards for fine particle pollution, generally known as soot. The Biden administration says reducing such pollution from tailpipes, smokestacks, and other industrial sources could prevent thousands of premature deaths a year. Environmental and and public health groups say the rule is a major step in improving Americans' health. Industry groups warn it could lead to a loss of manufacturing jobs and even shut down power plants or refineries. Environmental Protection Agency head Michael Regan says the rule will especially benefit children, older adults, and those with heart and lung conditions as well as people in low-income communities adversely affected by decades of industrial pollution. In legal news, a federal appeals court yesterday unanimously rejected Donald Trump's claim that he's immune from federal prosecution for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. In its ruling, the three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit wrote, quote, We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results, close quote. The judges went on to write, quote, Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes count. Trump has vowed to appeal the ruling, possibly to the Supreme Court. And a key vote is expected in the Senate today to open debate on a one hundred eighteen billion dollar immigration and foreign aid bill and is likely to fail due to Republican opposition. Even if the bill could somehow win enough support to pass the Senate, House Speaker Mike Johnson has already declared the legislation would be dead on arrival in the House. Yesterday, President Biden accused Donald Trump of blowing up the plan, which included harsh new border measures, as well as new military aid for Ukraine, Israel, and allies in the Pacific. If a vote to take up the package fails to get 60 votes, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he plans to take out the border provisions, which Republicans had demanded, and instead bring up emergency supplemental appropriations for foreign aid. That aid would provide $60 billion to Ukraine, boost support